0: Hello, and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and today I am talking all about miscarriage and diet. And let's give this disclaimer. This podcast is here to educate you and help you advocate. I personally had many miscarriages before I had my two kids, and I understand the emotional toll that it takes on you. I understand how hard it is. I understand the self-blame. I also understand the strong desire to do anything that you can that maybe can help, and that is why we are diving in to a recent article that came out evaluating diet types and miscarriage risk because some data is confusing and this is a meta analysis it's looking at many different studies combining the results to try to give us an idea of what may be the real take home message in the data again nothing we're going to talk is self blame it is just trying to help you from this point forward you can't go back and change the past but you can try to advocate and take charge of what you can now a little housekeeping before we dive in. We do, for fertility sake, your weekly Q and A at the end of every episode, this episode included. So we will dive into that. What I want you to know is that you can ask those questions on Instagram every Monday at Natalie Crawford MD. Some of those questions will be answered on Instagram, some will be answered here on the podcast, and some will be answered in the weekly newsletter which you can sign up for at crawfordmdcom newsletter. The weekly newsletter has an answer to a fertility question, goes over fertility in the news, has recipes and some of my favorite things and keeps you updated. So follow along. All right. So all the data that I'm talking about in this week's podcast is going to come from an original article in fertility and sterility. FNS is the leading journal for REIs. So this is where all of the latest and greatest research is going to be published. This article is called the association between dietary pattern and risk of miscarriage, a systemic review and meta-analysis. And this was recently published in 2023. So this article was just released and the lead author, if you are trying to search it up is Chung, C-H-U-N-G. All right, well, what the article is looking at. So when we think about articles, we always think about different types. So you have cohort studies where you evaluate a population. You have retrospective studies where you look backwards and chart review or look at data you had to try to draw associations. You have controlled trials, which is where you put different groups of people into different categories and you see what happens. You put them randomly and in the best type you have a double-blind randomized controlled trial. That's the gold standard of all research. Now, it can be really hard to do an RCT. It can be really hard to do an RCT in fertility and hard to do it when it comes to diet because there's so many different variables at play. A meta-analysis is looking at different study types and pulling conclusions from these different studies. This can be really helpful because it improves the strength if certain studies are small, and it also is balancing out different biases that certain studies may have by pooling the results together. So the objective of this study is to summarize evidence on the association between what your diet was before you got pregnant and the risk of miscarriage. So a little miscarriage background, we know that miscarriage is defined differently in every study. Let's just loosely define it as a positive pregnancy test that does not end in a baby. Now you can have miscarriage defined at different time periods. So overall, if you look at the incidence of miscarriage, it's about one out of every four pregnancies. Not all pregnancies are always identified and this typically falls in the category of a biochemical or a chemical pregnancy loss. When this happens, you have a positive pregnancy test or a positive hcg blood draw if you got your blood drawn but the values rise and then they fall if you were not checking a pregnancy this might just result in a delayed period it might result in a delayed period with a negative home pregnancy test depending on the sensitivity of the test studies have shown that causes of chemical losses are the same as causes of spontaneous abortions or what we think of as a clinical miscarriage A clinical miscarriage means after the pregnancy has been identified to be in the uterus, something then goes wrong. There can be a missed miscarriage, which is where a pregnancy just stops growing. There's no heartbeat, but you don't start bleeding on your own. There's a spontaneous miscarriage where you start just bleeding on your own. There can be miscarriages where you have a blighted ovum or what's called an anembryonic The actual embryo didn't develop, just more or less placental structures. And then you also have miscarriages that fall into the category of molar pregnancy, which is there are different types of molar pregnancy, but let's just think of it as a rapid growth of placental cells that is incompatible with survival. And you have tubal and ectopic pregnancies, pregnancies that are implanting outside the uterus that are also incompatible with survival. Now, a lot of ectopic pregnancies, it appears naturally spontaneously miscarry so positive pregnancy test things start progressing but then you just start bleeding or your levels drop so the fallopian tubes do not have the same ability to allow a placenta to implant like the uterus does so many of these pregnancies don't get very far so This all falls into this biochemical pregnancy loss, but also can fall into the heading of a pregnancy of unknown location. Because the truth is you don't know that early on where the pregnancy might be implanting. All you know is that either you're bleeding, your hormone levels are dropping, or your hormone levels are not rising appropriately. And that's because a pregnancy has to get to a certain stage before you can see it on ultrasound, regardless of it's intrauterine or in your fallopian tubes. And that's called the discriminatory zone, which is typically around an HCG level of 1500, where a pregnancy should be advanced enough to see on ultrasound. Now, those of us who do fertility treatments, and we know when you ovulated, or we know when your transfer was, you should see a gestational sac inside the uterus at five and a half weeks. This doesn't confirm that everything's going to be just peachy and fine, but you can at least know the location is known, which puts us into a different category. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, i not so excited the summer is around the corner I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash AAW and click get started. Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. So overall, one thing that's difficult with pregnancy loss studies is how do you define pregnancy loss? And this is one thing that is noticeably going to vary typically in an- all studies and in a meta-analysis you have to decide what limitation you're going to set and this study essentially said whatever the primary study defined as a miscarriage we went with it. It was a loss before viability which is typically considered to be 23 to 24 weeks. There was no upper gestational age and recurrent miscarriage was defined as two or more losses which is pretty standard now as what we are considering miscarriages. So they were looking at different types of dietary patterns. So we weren't looking at diets to lose weight or calorie restricting or supplementation with vitamins. The study was specifically trying to look at different food groups and how the study was categorized according to the food group you were eating or the type of dietary pattern somebody was adhering to and then looking at the outcome. And in this meta-analysis, there were 20 different studies that after thorough review were chosen to be selected for inclusion in the overall big data analysis So when you do a meta-analysis, you're taking the primary data from these different studies and pooling it together and then rerunning statistics to see what you're getting in addition to presenting the original data. So if we combine all of these studies together, what we're going to find is that there were over 63,000 women in the review, and about 13,000 of them ended up making it into the meta-analysis based on their criteria. All right, so if we look at individual food categories, first we are going to break down what the data said. So I'm just trying to simplify this so that we don't get bogged down. First category is fruit. So looking at the studies that they analyzed, looking at fruit, compared to a low fruit intake Those with a high intake of fruit had a 61% reduction in their odds of a miscarriage, and this was statistically significant. Another important point here is that a lot of diet studies are not all or none. They look at quartiles or different groupings. So looking at the lowest intake, then the second highest, the third highest, and the very highest, and comparing to the lowest quartile is what is often done in dietary studies. So high fruit intake better than low fruit intake. This meta-analysis looked at risk, but also looked at pregnancy outcome. And if we call a good pregnancy outcome, a live birth with a fetal weight over 2,500 grams versus poor, which is either premature or miscarriage or low fetal weight under 2,500 grams, then they also found that having a high intake of fruit was associated with more good pregnancy outcomes. Now, if we look at vegetables, when you're looking at vegetables, having a diet with high intake of vegetables versus low intake had a 41% reduction in miscarriage odds, also statistically significant. When you look at pregnancy outcomes, what we saw is that there was a substantial difference between good and poor pregnancy outcomes in those who had high versus low vegetable-rich diet. So, 45% good versus 11% in the poor group. So higher vegetable intake is associated with reduced miscarriage odds and good pregnancy outcomes. And then some studies grouped fruit and veggies together, and I don't think that is very surprising, But if we looked at higher fruit and vegetable intake, we had a lower miscarriage odds versus those who had the lowest intake. So you also had a statistically significant decrease in the odds of a miscarriage if you had a diet high in fruit and veggies versus that that was low in fruit and veggies. Interestingly, there was a sub-analysis looking at income and this change was most dramatic in high-income settings, meaning if you had high income and access to lots of different options, those who had a high versus a low fruit and veggie intake, there was a 51% reduction in miscarriage odds in the high fruit and veggie intake versus the low. However, in the middle income group, the association fell but it was much less strong and it became non-significant and so that is interesting because it makes you wonder about the other aspects of the diet potentially and how this one variable is important but not the only thing and I think that data will strike home as we keep going through a few of the other categories briefly and I promise you I'm not going to bore you with study results the whole time all right the next category is meat which is always a hard category is it all meat What about fish? What about red meat? That if we look at the group of all meat, there was no difference in odds of miscarriage or healthy pregnancy in those with high versus low meat intake. Now, when we look at certain categories of meat, so when you look at red meat, high versus low, white meat, high versus low, no difference in outcomes when it comes to miscarriage loss. When you look at seafood, compared with low intake of seafood, high intake of seafood, was associated with a 19% reduction in miscarriage, that was statistically significant. And when you looked at people who were a high income, subgroup analysis was the same. But when you looked at people who were middle class, then having a high versus low seafood intake was not associated with the reduction in miscarriage. Again, it potentially could be other aspects of the data at play here. Now, looking further at seafood, right? So seafood is an interesting category because we know that seafood has omega-3 fatty acids like EPA and DHA, which are really important and are anti-inflammatory, but also helpful for brain development. However, really fatty or those larger fish, also we have concern about mercury or even organochloride compounds, right? Thinking that the bigger fish have been exposed to smaller fish and have a higher odds of different chemical compounds, that potentially could be problematic in contributing to a miscarriage. So if we looked at fatty fish consumption and this study called high intake, two meals per week, high intake of fish that were fatty fish was not associated with an increased risk of miscarriage or stillbirth. And even though it wasn't statistically significant, the direction actually favored beneficial. So going with the whole that fish is beneficial. So the evidence suggests that higher seafood intake is associated with a reduced miscarriage odds, but probably does depend some on the type of food or the overall picture of your diet. Dairy is another hard category because you have high fat and low fat and things can be processed differently. When we look at dairy, High intake of dairy products versus low intake was associated with a 37% reduction in miscarriage, which was significant. And there's some hypothesis that the benefit here is actually because a lot of dairy products are high in calcium and they are good sources of protein and potentially that could apply to even non-dairy based plant milk options that have good protein and calcium added in. But that's just the hypothesis to why that was helpful. When you look at eggs, what about eggs, which don't always fit into a good category? High egg intake was associated with a reduction in miscarriage by 19%. And we know eggs are also a great source of protein. They have cholesterol. Remember that cholesterol are the building blocks of making a human. So we don't view cholesterol as the enemy in this context, but also they're really high in those omega-3 fatty acids, which overall are anti-inflammatory. All right, I have just a few more food categories to go through. So cereal or grain intake, higher grain intake was associated with a 33% reduction in miscarriage versus lower intake. That was statistically significant. Fat and oil, this was uncertain. So essentially we can say that it was undeterminate on if it was associated. It did not appear to be associated. Sugar substitutes. So looking at high versus low intake of sugar substitutes, it was an uncertain association in the whole study, but when looking at high versus middle income, in those in the middle income category, there was no difference in the high income, but in those in the middle income setting, higher consumption of sugar substitute had a significantly higher chance of a miscarriage. And then there were a few food items that were looked at independently, tried to pull together what different studies showed. So some of these are going to be refined sugar, sweets, chocolate, soft drinks, nuts, soy, processed meat, plant protein, fast food, fried food. So refined sugar and sweets as categories had an uncertain association, however, chocolate was associated with a reduced miscarriage odds, and that was statistically significant. Looking at soft drinks, having a higher soft drink intake had an uncertain odds on miscarriage. All right, looking at nuts, there was no association with nuts, good or bad. When it came to soy, there was no negative intake of soy with miscarriage. You'll hear people say that a lot. And then a study looking at plant-based proteins, so that is nuts, seeds, legumes, and soy altogether showed a linear relationship. The more you took, the better things were. There was also proof that looking at soy and plant-based proteins does not harm you when using in replacement for other protein sources, so at the expense of other protein sources. And now a word for one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential, and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take, and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients and a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business, Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at Ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's Ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. All right, and then looking at whole diet types, right? Because some studies break things down by these different categories that I just went over, which is a little bit hard to ascertain versus looking at studies that looked at specific types of diets. The take-home when you look at different dietary patterns is that there really was no difference in miscarriage rate looking at the Mediterranean diet, the quote fertility diet. We did see balanced diet and vegetarian diet point trended to having lower miscarriage odds and we had traditional diet and processed diet trending to higher chance of miscarriage with the processed diet being significantly higher and a balanced diet being significantly lower. So if we look at the full dietary pattern, a balanced diet with a low intake of processed foods was associated with the reduction in miscarriage risk. So when you look at all of this together, miscarriage rates are lower in women who had a higher intake of fruit, vegetables, seafood, dairy, eggs, and grains. That is the primary things that we can draw a conclusion on. High consumption of foods that are inflammatory, a pro-inflammatory diet, processed foods, increased your miscarriage odds. Diets rich in foods that are conventionally thought of as healthy, like fruits and vegetables, especially when combined with not choosing unhealthy options like processed foods, did decrease your miscarriage risk. So Let's just step back for a minute because this is something that I think I know I just went through all these categories, but people ask all the time about diet and improving their chances of pregnancy and live birth. And I say the same thing. I always say it's not going to be shocking information. It's not that people are trying to hide something from you. But for so long, we have thought of certain foods as healthy or good diet because of weight loss and a lot of that has been driven by the diet industry and if we really switch our gear and think about food as far as it goes with inflammation meaning foods that cause more inflammation are bad foods that cause less inflammation are good you want to decrease your inflammation that is a probably an underlying cause in a lot of infertility in my opinion Especially a lot of the different diseases we see. I will say one big caveat I'm not talking about people with PCOS or people with anovulation or people with endometriosis. Those are certain categories and different studies have been done looking at these distinct disease types but most of the same information is really the same there's some few unique differences when it comes to different disease subtype but when we really look at it what we're trying to say is that foods that cause high inflammation are going to be the ones that are bad for you so a few things that I just want to say out loud to round this out fruits and vegetables are good for you period the end People get in their minds that certain things are bad for them. Fruit is too high in sugar. That's just not true. Fruits and vegetables are beneficial. Natural sugars that are found in fruit is also balanced by fiber and antioxidants and vitamins and minerals. Vegetables and fruits are good for you. Grains are good for you. Fiber is good for you. It looks like filling your diet mostly with those things and then bringing in either plant-based sources of protein or meat. Seafood appears to be beneficial, other types of meat uncertain, but filling your diet with more fresh foods, less processed foods, less added sweets and sugars is going to be the key. Sugar substitutes have been claimed to be healthy, right? Like you're using this artificial sugar instead of sugar, then that's better for you. Even though it was just in one study, it was an uncertain effect, but we would say that it does look like overall high sugar intake is associated with poor obstetrical outcomes like preterm delivery and an increase in birth weight. And sugar substitutes are a really broad group, but I wouldn't just blindly believe that all sugar substitutes are good. Also, I just wanna say that for a long time, you have people in two groups either saying that diet does or doesn't impact fertility or pregnancy outcomes. I think we are seeing enough studies showing us that certainly there are some variables that are impactful. It's probably pretty broad, meaning healthy whole foods are good, processed foods, fake foods are bad. When you look at how nutrition can impact reproduction, it's probably through oxidative stress, inflammation, it can change DNA. This theory is supported by things that Increase inflammation, pro-inflammatory diets having an increased risk and in miscarriage. So even though certain food categories might be broad or might not have enough data, you can easily see this overall picture that ultra-processing foods, adding these chemicals to foods, making things so far removed from nature is really not going to result in your optimal health and your optimal outcomes. All right, so again, my recommendation is for a really plant-heavy diet. It doesn't mean you have to be 100% no meat to be plant-based, but having a plant-focused diet means that you are making sure to incorporate fruits and vegetables into every meal. You're going to incorporate your whole grains, not your refined and processed grains. You're going to look at either Protein sources that come from nuts or soy, if you don't like animals or you want to decrease your intake, looks like seafood is beneficial. It looks like white meat and red meat is on the fence. There's probably a balance here about how much meat or the type of meat and if it triggers inflammation in you. But I usually reduce it in some patients because if you decrease meat, you must increase fruits and veggies. It's just a linear thing. But ultimately, high in fruits and veggies... Whole grains, yes. Limit processed foods. Limit added sugars. Look at your meat. seafood, good. Nuts, we like. Limit red meat and white meat. But ultimately, have a diet full of whole foods. And nothing should feel restrictive. It should feel like this is your lifestyle. This is what you eat. What it should also feel like is that you have freedom. You know that having cake on one occasion or a hamburger at this barbecue isn't going to throw everything off because you're not on a diet. You're not dieting to get pregnant. You are making healthy daily lifestyle choices every single day that are allowing you that freedom without thinking twice. And you know that you're putting into your body the vast majority of the time, things that are good and supporting that future potential pregnancy. All right. And anytime I talk about a paper, I like to read the conclusion. This review and meta-analysis provides evidence of a protective association between fruits, vegetables, seafood, dairy products, eggs, and cereal or grains against miscarriage. Further, a diet exposure that is high in quality with healthy micronutrient sources and low in pro-inflammatory factors or unhealthy food groups, such as highly refined processed meat sugar substitutes may be associated with a reduction in the miscarriage risk. To me, that answers the question, and that provides you a lot of leniency in what you're choosing each day. High in fruits, veggies, seafood, dairy, eggs, and grains is going to be the most productive when combined with a reduction in pro-inflammatory foods, which are highly refined and processed foods or sugar substitutes. All right, we are going to move on to fertility Q&A. This is where I answer your fertility questions. You can leave these questions on Instagram every Monday at Natalie Crawford, MD. Leave them in the comment box. Some will be answered on Instagram and some will be answered here on the podcast. Some will also be answered in the weekly newsletter, which you can find at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. And we have special fertility Q&A episodes, which are my absolute favorite. You can call the voicemail at 657 229 3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. Leave a voicemail and we will happily get to your questions. All right, well now we're gonna answer a few of those questions you leave for fertility's sake every Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. What kind of sedation do you give for egg retrieval? This is a great question and definitely got a lot of interest with the Retrievals podcast, which is currently one of the top podcasts produced by the New York Times, who made the serial podcast. In this podcast, they're following a group of patients who were actually not given proper sedation. They were in pain. They were awake during their egg retrieval. And people didn't believe them. However, the type of sedation that they use, some clinics do use. It's in-office sedation given by an office personnel, not an anesthesia provider. And they were just given anxiety medication and pain medication in the IV, which people do. It can save you money. Personally, I've only ever done egg retrievals with actual anesthesia from an anesthesia provider. I did not want to go to fellowship places that did this type of conscious sedation. So I give patients or I don't, but the anesthesiologist does, gives patients propofol through the IV and pain medicine like fentanyl and then anxiety medication if they need it. But with propofol, you're actually asleep. You remember none of it. You feel no pain. In the Retrievals podcast with conscious sedation, it was just an anxiety medication and a pain medication. The pain medication, fentanyl, was replaced with saline, so those patients got no pain medication. And They were meant to be awake though. They knew they were going to be awake in the procedure and that's absolutely different than most providers or at least most US-based clinics. All right. What prep should I do for the second transfer when the first transfer ended in miscarriage? I wish there was a clear answer to give you. I think this is a good question to ask. Some of it depends on the entire scenario. Remember that not every embryo is going to result in a live birth, even if it's genetically tested. We tend to think genetically tested embryos of course they're going to work. And that's not the case. Our live birth rates with one genetically normal embryo, it's about 65%. So that means there's a huge group of people who are not going to end up getting pregnant or get pregnant and eventually miscarry. We know now that a lot of this lack of live birth or lack of getting pregnant or even miscarriage is not about the uterus or implantation issues. The vast majority is still an embryonic issue. It is still an issue with embryo competency, the embryo being able to do the job it needs to, cells divide appropriately, turn into organs and body parts. So a lot of times I might not do anything different. I might say, hey, we had implantation, presumably something was wrong with the embryo. I liked X, Y, or Z. I'm going to do it again sometimes I would do something different. So I want to look at how your lining developed. Some of this will depend on was the embryo genetically tested or not? How far along did you get? Was it a chemical or did you get to eight weeks? And I want the full picture is this your first miscarriage? Have you had other miscarriages? Am I worried about recurrent implantation failure? Could you have endometriosis or need one of those protocols? Was your lining thin? Should I consider a hysteroscopy? So there's a lot of good questions to ask, but sometimes the right answer is exactly what you already had without any changes, but you should ask the question and you should be able to get an answer from your doctor. All right, my fertility doctor just announced she's pregnant and I don't want to see her. What should I do? This is so hard. I've been on both sides of this, honestly. But as somebody who was pregnant during my time as a fertility doctor, I tried to hide it so much. I wore the biggest scrubs. And looking back, I was so concerned about what my patients thought that I really never enjoyed being pregnant and I never was showing off my baby bump and tried to act so not pregnant so much of the time and that's multifaceted. I also didn't want my other co-fellows have to do more work because I was pregnant and a lot of different things go into it but the reality is your fertility doctor knows how hard it is for you to see other pregnant people. You can absolutely switch care to somebody else if it is too hard for you, and you shouldn't feel any weirdness about this, nor should your fertility doctor. And they do know that it's hard for you to see pregnant people. The easiest will be if there's somebody else in the office who you can switch care to who is not pregnant. That's an option. Another option is to switch clinics altogether. It is important for you to feel like your fertility clinic's a safe space, they have the right to be pregnant and not have to hide their pregnancy, but also remember you don't know anybody's story. So don't make presumptions about it. This is somebody who's trying to show up and do their job. But if it hurts you, the fertility office should be a safe place. Many of us try to limit children and babies and other people from coming in so it can be safe. But surely if one of us or our staff or our team is pregnant, we can't hide that. But you can ask to have somebody else and just be honest. The worst thing to do in this scenario is hide it and then feel uncomfortable or feel sad or feel upset. Just say, hey, I really love you or love your care, if that's true. And then just say, but It's just really hard for me that you're pregnant and there's no offense, but I'm going to request to switch care to somebody else in the practice if that's okay. Omnitrope for egg quality. What are your thoughts and do you recommend this? Omnitrope is human growth hormone. It's important to note that this is not FDA approved yet. So it's not a medication that has been approved by the FDA for the indication of fertility. That being said, I do use it and I like to use it in somebody who I anticipate being a quote unquote poor responder because they have maybe low ovarian reserve for their age or they are older or if they have had an outcome in the past that is poorer than previously expected, meaning we didn't have the embryo number or the number normal that we would have thought based on their other parameters. My partner actually did a study that was published looking at patients who underwent IVF and didn't have the response that they would expect expected when it came to number of blast and number of euploid embryos, did the exact same protocol, no protocol changes except the addition of growth hormone to it, and people had an increased number of blastocysts and an increased number of euploid embryos. There hasn't been an associated with live birth. That's why it's not FDA approved. So that takes longer and that's a different study. And you and I can sit here and say the more euploid embryos you get, the higher the odds you're going to get to a live birth. And that is just the data. Would you consider a modified natural FET cycle in somebody with a short luteal phase? Well, yes and no. When it comes to frozen embryo transfers, you have a natural cycle, a modified natural, and a controlled. A controlled cycle is where you are totally controlling the environment, suppressing with birth control pills and or Lupron, growing the lining with estrogen, and then giving injectable progesterone. This is quote-unquote the standard, been studied for a very long time. Certainly there are circumstances where I like this. Unexplained infertility, never had any implantations, endometriosis, older age unpredictable ovulation or failure to respond to ovulation induction agents, to name a few. A natural FET is where somebody ovulates and you totally follow their natural cycle. You're not doing any interventions, just transferring in that natural implantation window. Most of us are a little too controlling for that and we do what's considered a modified natural where we give you medication to induce or amplify ovulation, such as letrozole or FSH. And then we are watching a follicle or a couple follicles grow, potentially doing a trigger shot or detecting your surge, and then starting progesterone and doing the transfer based on that. For me, somebody who has a short luteal phase is a contraindication for a pure natural cycle. I wouldn't be opposed to an ovulation induction modified natural cycle if otherwise I felt like the criteria were right. And my favorite people to do a modified natural on is if you've had a live birth in the past in a natural cycle or in an IUI. Well, friends, I hope that answered some of your fertility questions. Remember that you can ask your questions every Monday on Instagram. At Natalie Crawford, MD, we'll answer some here, some in the weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for at nataliecrawfordmd.com/newsletter, and some of them will be answered right there on Instagram at Natalie Crawford, MD. Thank you, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.